It is a beautiful Tuesday, May 18th. I'm Guy Adami. Joined as always by Dan Nathan, my dear friend Dan Nathan, for the macro setup. This macro setup brought to you by Nadex, the leading U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and knockouts. We'll talk about that later. Dan Nathan, how are you? I'm doing great, Guy Adami here. L- listen, we're starting this week off the way we ended last week with disappointing economic data here in the U.S. That's not something Ah. that we're, are we expecting to hear that at this stage of the V reversal in this economic recovery here? Can I just tell the folks uh, watching the macro setup that a few years ago, you coined the phrase uh, MAGA for stocks. Do you recall that, Dan? (laughs) Would you like to tell the folks what the MAGA complex is? Yeah, this was back in 2018. There was all this focus on the FANG complex. Remember that? That was the Facebook, the Amazon, the Netflix, and the Google. And I said, forget the FANG, man. There was was two really small names in there. I wanted to go MAGA. That was the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, and the Amazon. At the time, they were all nearing about $1 trillion in market cap. Now, I mentioned that because, you know, I think nine to 12 months later, President Trump actually was had a, had a piece of like a legal pad. And yeah. he wrote down what was the mega complex. And he pointed out that all those stocks had a trillion dollar market cap. And he was very impressed by it. But you were well ahead of it. Now, I mentioned <laughs> that because you started this macro setup with disappointing data. And you have now coined a phrase that I guarantee within three to six months, everybody's going to talk about. You're calling it the transitory tantrum. And you know what? That's genius because it exactly what you led with lends itself to what you want to talk about in terms of this whole thing is transitory, perhaps. Maybe the Fed's got it right, Dan, Nathan. Well, I, it, it, listen, it's not that the Fed has it right. You know, I've been in this business for 25 years, and I think that every single time that you just hear this, this, this narrative, whatever the narrative is, it bubbles up, and then it just seeps through the entire investment community, and it gets to retail, and the financial media can't stop covering it. Usually, it goes back the other way. And, and you know, one of the reasons why I say this is that the Fed has been saying for months now that they see some of the inflation pressures that we're seeing in a whole host of different industries and a whole host of different geographies, they're saying it's transitory and it's really easy to shoot against the Fed, right? We can go back to Bernanke and and back in 2007 when subprime was bubbling up here or looked like it was going to kind of bubble over and they were calling it what, Guy Adami? What what was the Fed saying that the subprime- Contained. They they said it was contained. Right. And it certainly was not contained. Horse hockey, I say. It's interesting, by the way, you've said bubble up a few times. Like the La Brea tar pits for you folks that have ever been out to California, Dan. Anyway, please continue. Yeah, I, I guess what's different here is that the, the subprime was was a moment in time. It was something that was going on in the industry. It was permeating throughout you know, the housing sector, and obviously it did blow up. What's different about inflation is that what, what do we know about inflation over the last 20 or 30 years, Guy? Has it been generally trending in one direction. And what direction Down, is that? Lower. It's, no it's question been tra- about and, it. And you say this all the time. I've heard you say it for five years on Fast Money on CNBC together, is that deflationary or, or that technology or big tech in general is this massive deflationary force. And I go back to prior to the pandemic, you know, we were talking about the machines taking all the jobs and universal basic income was going to need to be instituted. And now all of a sudden, you know, yes, we've had this massive economic dislocation over the last year change or so. Um, but now it's that wages are going through the roof and input prices are this, and we have this disruption, in these supply chains and this and that. It's all going to come back. That's what I'm saying here. I think we're going to we'll look see. back on 2021 and we're going to say, wait a minute, that was kind of goofy. We had a little bit of a transitory 
tantrum. And I just take back to this is what's really important. When, when the Fed was floating that trial balloon in 13 and 14 about ending QE and ending ZERP, we had what? A taper tantrum. We saw rates go high. They tried to move ahead of it. And you know what they did? They spend the next few years going lower. That's all I love the scene at the end of The Wizard of Oz when um, the wizard gets in the balloon and, he, yeah. you know, he sort of floats off without Dorothy. Do you recall what was on the balloon? For you folks at home, you can at me. Um, there's a name of a city, but I digress. Listen, what you didn't <laughs> mention, though, Dan, is the fact that everybody's debating, politicians debate over minimum wage, yeah. goes back and forth. I get it, you know, right down the middle in terms of parties, who likes it, who doesn't. But the market's going to raise minimum wage for the politicians. And why do I say that? Well, you saw Chipotle Mexican Grill announce that they were going to raise their minimum wage to $15 an hour. And oh, by the way, I think you saw it similar with Amazon. And you're going to see similar with more and more companies. And there's your wage growth and there's your wage okay. deflation. But, but and here's you're right the thing, about guy. technology being deflationary. It's the greatest deflationary force in the history of mankind. I can go back to Eli Whitney. And the cotton gin and all those things are extraordinarily deflationary. With that said, inflation's in all the wrong places. Now you're finally getting where you want it in terms of wages. And guess what, Dan? That's the final piece to this puzzle, in my opinion. All right. But but really, you know, that doesn't speak to some sort of economic disconnect. That might speak to what, um, you know, gross margins for a lot of these companies, right, that are having to raise wages are at all time highs. And they're at all time highs because there's tons of liquidity. Right. So if they have to spend more money for uh, workers that and that reduces their wages or reduces their margins if they're not able to pass that through, then that's really an issue for the stock market. It's not exactly an issue for the economy, in my opinion, because what do we know happened in 2018 when U.S. corporations got a trillion and a half dollar tax cut? What did they do? They didn't invest more in R&D. They didn't hire more people. They bought back their damn stock guy. So at the end of the day, I think we can sit here and go back and forth about this. Um, we will see in the not so distant future what the impact is. But talking about liquidity, you know, here's um, a headline. I think it's going to catch a lot of attention this week. Obviously, we've been talking about an infrastructure plan that the Biden administration is trying to push through here. And I guess the question is whether or not Republicans are going to counter with some sort of plan that doesn't look, uh, you know, north of two trillion where Biden is right now. So the question I have for you, Guy, is if people are worried about inflation, they're worried about liquidity, um, should this administration be pushing forward with a massive infrastructure plan, which will only kind of exasperate some of those issues yeah. in the not so distant or, future. You're assuming that assuming that they are focused on all the things that we talk about all the time, it's interesting. Uh, the White House press secretary actually asked was asked a question about, does President Biden agree with Janet Yellen's comments? And she said effectively, you know, he's in line with this Treasury secretary, which I'm sure she didn't even know what he was talking about. But the reality is <laughs> the concerns were inflation. And I think what you're saying is, if uh, the Biden administration were to acquiesce, I guess, for lack of a better word, and sort of do a um, tapered down version, that would be actually really good for everything you're talking about. Some of these inflation fears might go away, um, and maybe that would be the best of both worlds. A really lousy Van Halen song, but maybe good for the market. So we'll see. Uh, and that's something to keep an eye on. I think you're smart to point it out that if, in fact, there is some compromise there that might assuage some of the inflationary concerns that the market seemingly had had maybe doesn't have as much right now. So, Guy, for somebody like you who's had a front row seat to just kind of the British invasion, you know, rock and roll <laughs> for the last 50 years, the fact that you quote 
uh, Van Hagar is just embarrassing. Like, no, it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing, and you shouldn't do it, okay? Because I know it comes easily for you, but you shouldn't do it. Um, here's one. Let's call this the big distort here. Uh, Michael Slide Burry. Rolls, they say. You, you yes. see what I did here? Yeah. Michael Burry of the big short fame. You know that you, you saw the movie, didn't you see the no, movie? No, actually, I, I, didn't see, I, I really? didn't see the movie, and a lot of people added me about that. No, I have not seen the movie, but maybe uh, I'll rent it in Blockbuster this oh, week. That's that's right. We, on our podcast, on the tape yeah. podcast, yeah. our, our yeah. co-host is Danny Moses, who's actually been a guest of the macro setup in the past. He was prominently featured in that book by Michael Lewis and the movie by Adam McKay. And you revealed the fact that the first time you see the big short uh, or the next time you see the big short will be the first time. And Danny almost fell off his seat. That was not cool guy, Donnie. Well, it's not a knock on Danny. I mean, I love Dan. I think he's a genius. But it, movies like that, just they don't do it for me. You know, the best movie about Wall Street was Wall Street. Everything after that is just disappointing. Oh, I'm sure this movie is great. No, blah, blah, blah. But I'm not particularly interested. I am particularly interested in Michael Burry because he is a genius as well. And what the naysayers will say, listen, he was right about subprime. He was about a year early in terms yeah. of, you know, when the whole thing came to fruition. And oh, by the way, He's long puts, but the guy's also long stock. So, I mean, maybe this is just a hedge. The point is, you know, he's making a pretty big bet here, and it is a direction, directional bet. And, oh, by the way, on the back end of this bet is an inflation one as well that, you know, he thinks it's going to get out of hand. We'll see. Again, he's typically early, um, and we'll see how it plays out. But it's worth pointing out that Michael Burry, who a lot of people put on a pedestal in terms of some of his points of views, and some of his market prognostications is making a pretty significant bet in both these. And, you know, look, I would submit, and I think you would agree, Tesla, I think, is as big a barometer for the broader market as an Amazon, as an Apple, yeah. as a Google, and some of these other names. And obviously, since reporting earnings a few weeks ago, when the stock closed around 720, Tesla has not traded well at all. And by the way, full disclosure, I thought the stock would be 750 the next day. I was R-O-N-G wrong, but that's neither here nor there, Dan. Yeah, I think what's interesting, you know, you just said that Tesla is a bigger barometer, some of those mega cap tech. What I would say, it's it's a different sort of barometer. It's measuring something different than, let's say, uh, Amazon or, or, or Google or, or Facebook or something like that. It's really measuring, you know, this kind of notion that uh, this greater fools in a way, you know, like at its highs, the company had, you know, more than the $800 billion market cap. Now it's about 550. So it's down about 35% from its highs. We're going to take a look at the chart um, in a little bit. What, what I think it measures though is kind of unusual enthusiasm you know if you think about it right and so one of the issues that Burry has with the with the stock is that they are heavily reliant um, and I think it shows that in the note on, on these tax credits right here and we also know in the last quarter that they sold 10 percent of their Bitcoin holdings so there's yeah. a lot of funky stuff going on there um, so you know to me what, what I think is interesting is you put you know this Tesla and you put a famed short seller calling you know the biggest bubble of the last 50 years in markets um, and then it has to lead you to some of these other pockets of, let's say, unusual enthusiasm in the markets. And that would be SPACs, it'd be IPOs. Um, I would say this is a, obviously the, the memeiest stock of the meme stocks. And then, of course, crypto, um, which leads me to think, and you said this a numerous times, Guy, of late, if you take a look under the hood of the S&P mm -hmm. 500, that's only down about 2% from its all-time highs, there's some stuff that doesn't act particularly great. Now, here, we're going to talk about home builders, that disappointing housing 
housing starts number this morning, we've seen home builders reverse off of highs about 10, 12%. Some of the biggest ones, Lennar and Toll Brothers. And I would just tell you that, you know, this market rotation where the NASDAQ has massively underperformed the S&P of late has really relied on things like home builders, banks, energies, materials, that sort of thing. So you do not want to lose these groups that are holding things up here right now. Home builders is one of them. I think you lost them. And then the other one is crypto. We know that that's taken, um, you know, a, a leg lower here. And we had just a note where, you know, uh, a Bank of America survey of fund managers, they, they say that Bitcoin is the most trou- crowded trade in the world, not just the market, in the world right here. And we've seen Bitcoin now come off close to 30% or so. What's your take on that? Well, it's we interesting. You know, I mean, it's been that, see, I think the naysayers or the endorsers or people like Brian Kelly would say Bitcoin is not a trade. I mean, this is a fundamental change in the way things are being done, right? I mean, this is, you know, this is not like being long um, Apple. I mean, this is a much different thing. So I understand biggest crowded trade in the history. I mean, a trillion dollars. I heard Michael Novogratz on this morning and says the market cap of crypto is probably going to go north of five, six trillion dollars. And, you know, he thought Bitcoin would sort of base somewhere between 40 and $50,000 over the next couple of weeks. So I think some people look at it as a trade. Other people look at this as sort of a technology, a revolutionary technology, which is anything but a trade. So we'll see how it plays out. Now, I will tell you what's pretty crowded, I think, is this long tech trade, some of these high value names. And the bloom is clearly coming off the rose now. When you talk about under the hood, that's the first place I would look. Some of these high flying tech names. I mean, NVIDIA, for example, I think peaked out at six. Uh, I want north of $600, and you see how miserably that's traded since their earnings release, and I can go on and on. So the long, high-value, high-multiple tech trade is clearly crowded. And we'll see, again, under the hood, it's a problem. Now, people only look at the S&P 500, and I made that point on Fast Money a week or so ago, where under the hood, things are a little distorted. But, you know, you look at the paint job, you look at the S&P 500, things look great. But things are not always what they appear, Dan Nathan. Well, let's look at the S&P chart that you just referenced. We have a a one year chart and, you know, there's not too many times I can look back in my career guy and and I can see that on the year, the S&P 500's performance severely lags that of the NASDAQ or excuse me, outperforms the NASDAQ the way it does here. So right now we have the S&P 500 up more than uh, 10% of the year and the NASDAQ's up less than 5%. There's not too many times I can see that, you know, over the last 20 years. And one of the reasons for is that we've seen these tech stocks become some of the biggest names in the broad market here. So something clearly to your point is going on. You're just seeing some profit taking in those names, especially when you consider, you know, the mass about performance that we saw in 2020 off the lows here. What does this S&P chart look to you? I drew a couple lines. I know I have to make it easy for you. That's why yeah, I kind do. of color code them that. a little bit. I know. What yeah. do you see here? I would like for the fonts to be a little larger, but other than that, you've done a wonderful <laughs> job. You know, it's like the scene in Goodfellas when they're sitting around the kitchen table late, late in the middle of the night and they, she pulls the painting out. One dog's looking one way, the other's looking yeah. the other way. And that's What exactly do you want from me? What do you want what from do you me, want guy? From me? Yeah. That's the S&P and that's the NASDAQ. One's looking one way, the other's looking the other way. What do you want from me, Dan? I'll tell you, <laughs> at a certain point, the S&P 500 has to catch up, right? I mean, you're starting to lose rung after rung of this basically uh, foundation of the S&P 500. And when you start to lose them all, I think something's got to give. And it's going to give in the form of the S&P. Again, I've said this a number of times, trading down to and probably holding 
that 200-day moving average. And by the way, it coincides with that recent low, if you look, the green line. Yeah. And it also coincides exactly with the 200-day, which has been trending higher. So I think you're on to something here, Dan. Obviously, it needs to take 4,000 out first. You got to sort of crawl before you can walk. But if you're trading binary options or knockouts, as we mention all the time, that 3,700 level is a bullseye in terms of where this sucker should trade, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, when I look at that one year, I would also say if you were going to have a move from 4160 or so where we are down to 3710, that's pretty substantial there. I mean, I would expect that that March low in the 200 days should serve as some meaningful um, support. That 4000 level, the breakout from early April, less so, but it'll be, you know, there's an air pocket, right, in between 4000 and 3800. So keep an eye on that. I just have a five year chart here to you, Guy. We like drawing lines. We, we, yeah, sure we, we do. do. We take the ruler out. We do it um you know if you look at that you attach that high from late 17 um it's above the 18 high you put it up to that 19 or the 2020 high before we basically crashed um and then later that year you know you get a move back to those march lows or so that's basically confirming that prior technical resistance that has been support that might be good um support near term yeah, at 3800 hundred percent. This is just a different way to look at the chart we just previously yeah. put up. I mean, this just looks at it through a longer lens, obviously, but it all lines up. I mean, if you really start doing the math, 37 makes 3,700 in the S&P 500 makes sense for a myriad of different reasons. And we'll see what happens if and when we get there. But I do think, you know, given all the rungs we're losing, you know, all the pillars we're losing one after another, at a certain point, the last thing that falls into the S&P 500, and we'll see, but I think you, you drew two great charts. I appreciate that. Yeah. And now we should do the slide at Earl and take a look at the NASDAQ. Ah, look at these guys are so far. I mean, it's like they're in my head. <laughs> this is another great chart, Dan, and you're the NASDAQ. I mean, you're the tech guy, right? So you drew the line, the Am horizontal I? line, prior resistance becomes support. The prior resistance in the form of that August high in 2020, you can see where the line starts, becomes support, and you know you drew the line, and within reason, that resistance has become support. The question is, now it coincides with the 200-day moving average, which is effectively 12,500. Do we touch it? And I got to tell you something. You look at this and you say it's pretty much a foregone conclusion. What are your thoughts, Dan? Yeah. So you just mentioned before, you know, some of these mega cap names. This is the NDX, the NASDAQ 100. We know the top five names. You know, you, you mentioned the, the MAGA complex, you know, earlier um, at some point in 2020, as Facebook started to kind of make its way towards that one trillion dollar mark, it still hasn't gotten there. I threw an F in front of the MAGA. We just Why called it you? F. F MAGA there. Um, so, you know, they make up 45% of the index of 100 stocks here. You know, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Facebook act very well. Apple and Amazon have barely, I know Amazon basically touched that September 2020 high, but was unable after earnings, after a blowout earnings to break out. And even Apple, after their blowout earnings, um, did not make a new high. So you're seeing some major names, $4 trillion in those two, kind of go sideways, correct, over time. The other ones that we talked about have done pretty well, but then it's all those secular growth names, the things like Tesla, the thing like Zoom. I mean, the list goes on and on and on that we're trading at crazy multiples. They've come in 20, 30, 40%. Some of those IPOs have come in considerably. So to me, you know, the NASDAQ, the NDX in particular, the QQQ, if you're trading the ETFs, that's the one you want to buy. If you were to have that 
10% correction, that's where you get back in because they, you know, to me, that's where you're going to get the bang for your buck on the other side of that. So if you're looking at the NDX in particular, that 12,500, that 200 day, which is kind of near those March closing lows, um, that would be a level that I would probably start to nibble at. Listen, I don't see, you know, the Fed remaining accommodative guy, you know, they're not going to let things get too nasty to the downside. They're letting inflation run hot, which, you know, a lot of people are unhappy about because they think even Druckenmiller that we talked about last week, they think they're creating asset bubbles, but that also means that they're not going to let things get out of control to the downside. But that's where you get worried right there, huh? Because you're you just think they lost you're, control. You're saying that to try to, what's the word? Trigger you. you. I'm trying to trigger you. Right. And it's, it's just not going to work. It's just not going to work. I mean, they can do all they want at a certain point. At a certain point, they lose control. They think they can control something that they can't. Yeah. The market believes them now. When the market calls horse hockey on them, that's when we're going to have problems. But in the meantime, listen, you drew the line. And again, if you're trading binaries, knockouts, that 12500 makes a lot of sense. And by the way, it really coincides with the S&P 500 chart that we gave you a few minutes ago. Why don't we slide it, Earl, once again to take a look at you know my fave, you know, I'm all geeked up about yeah, this. You're so yields. geeked up, guy. I made you three charts on the U.S. 10-year yield because I just figured I want to hear you go. You've had a great call on this. You've been calling for 2%. You've been called. You called when it was 50 bips last summer. You said we're going to go straight to 1%. Then you said 1.5%. What do you just move? Why do you move in half percent? Uh, uh, what is that about you? You know what I mean? Handles. Yeah. Handles, as they call it. So listen, I know we, we talk about tells all the time. I actually think we mentioned the movie Rounders when Matt Damon finally figures out John Malkovich's tell. And I will tell you that for me, it happened a couple Fridays ago when you had that horrible jobs number. I mean, it was yeah. an atrocity. Nobody was even within the right zip code of where that number came in. <laughs> and 10-year yields went from about 158-ish down to 147 in a heartbeat on that Friday. And then they spent the rest of the day trending higher. That told me all I need to know. You got an incredibly bad number, which should have really knocked yields down and kept them down. And it did anything but. And then we've obviously had some inflation data that's come in on the back end of that. 165 now, you know, I think we're going to still trend up to that 175 level. If you're playing our home game in the form of the TLT, if that does it for you, 133 is absolutely your line in the sand. We don't have that chart, so I'm not calling for it. But if you just want sort of a, a marker, as they say, that 133 yeah. level in the TLT. But I'm telling you, Dan, I think we take it that 177 level that we touched earlier and we're through it, as they say, like certain substances through certain animals that spend a lot of time on golf courses. And we have a little longer chart, Dan, which I think illustrates this even better. Um, you, this is, look, you go back 12 years with this chart and you, yeah. you have, we're in that channel now, you know, we're in that between one and a half to 3% channel. We're in the lower end of it. I don't think we're getting to 3% by the way, but I certainly think we're getting to 2%. And I think that will coincide with the next chart that you, you give me so many charts here. There you go. This <laughs> is it. This is upper left to the lower right. As Dennis Gartman would say, this is a Basically, a 30-year downtrend means yields have gone down for 30 years. And listen, this chart will say they will continue to go down. But before they do that, Dan, I think they're going to touch that 2%. And I tell you, I don't think the market's going to like that all that much. 
Maybe. I mean, you know, I, I, I'll look at you. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I, I, I kind of take the other side. I mean, it depends. You've been right. It, it's the speed in which the rates move. That might be the thing that catches people off sides. Um, it just doesn't seem that the Fed seems particularly worried again about inflation and that they're going to move on it. It'll be very interesting. A lot of people are kind of identifying the, the, the St. Louis Fed Jackson Hole speech at the end of August. That might be the time in which they kind of float the trial balloon where they're going to kind of take their foot off the pedal a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see if the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is already at your 2% call. Um, you know, listen, you look at those charts and you say, all right, 2%, that's not going to be a difficult thing. But I go back to the taper tantrum of 2013-14. Rates went to 3%. Um, it took them a long time, Guy, to start raising rates again. They did kind of taper QE a little bit. Um, and then I think about just 2018, Q4, when the 10-year U.S. Treasury got above or just above Above three percent. What happened, guy, to the S and P five hundred? Went down nineteen point nine percent from mid October until I believe yeah. Christmas Eve, Dan. And you know, you get mad at me because I say nineteen point nine percent. I don't round up because I'm not that type of person. I like to be somewhat precise. And yeah. it is to the penny, as Carter was. I just want to remind you. I want to remind you, the very old friend and a brilliant colleague of ours at CNBC who just joined us here is listening for the first time to the macro setup. Our friend Amanda, Amanda Diaz. Amanda Oops. Diaz. And I guarantee you, one of the notes she's taking is, "Guy, just say twenty percent. Don't that do the nineteen. Fun. I'm just saying. There's a there's a distinct possibility that that has already made it in her notes. I just want to tell you that right here. But which listen, will be even more of a reason for me to continue on that uh, nineteen point nine. Anyway, because you like to. All right. But my point, my point very simply is that when you think about one of the reasons that everyone's worried about inflation is that the global central banks and global treasuries and, you know, in our Congress, we've just tacked on tens of trillions of dollars of liquidity, right, to kind of um, combat this pandemic. And when you think about the cost of servicing that going forward, right, because we know that we're not going to, you know, make up that with growth in this and that. That never happens here. So rates have to stay low. I mean, they're never going up in a meaningful right. manner. And look at that last cycle. Where did we get the Fed funds to, guy? We got to like 2% or something like no, that. I understand. After, I understand. You know, Listen, I understand yeah. that argument. And you're, you're hearkening back to what Stan Druckenmiller said a week and a half, two weeks yeah. ago, that if we were to get this huge rise in rate, we'd have 30% of our GDP Right. Would be basically to right to take care of the debt, right? Which is which, this, which is, a segue, this is a good segue. This is a good segue into you like to call you like to call out how you're R O N G wrong on stuff. You've been very yeah. uh, R I G H T right. Is that how you would say that on the? I don't know. Uh, the, wrong, the, right? I mean, on, what, on, I, on the U.S. Dollar. It's, like, it's like the dogs again on the boat. It's the same. Listen, yeah. I never thought, and you were, <laughs> you made a great call. You said it's too. You know, we talked about crowded trades at the beginning yeah. of this. One of the most credit trades earlier this year was short U.S. dollar, and a lot of people got smoked on that one as the dollar index went basically from 89.5 up to 94. I think almost traded close to 95. But you know, one of the things I was saying is you know you got to sell bounces. I didn't think the bounce would be as significant as it was, but here we are again below 90 in the dollar index. And I got to tell you, and I think you would agree, we get down to that 88 level, and it's going to be really hard this time to hold. So you know, we have a longer term chart and in terms of the DXY, in terms of where it can go. And in my opinion, I think we have a 10 year chart. Yeah. You look at that and that, listen, that 88 level, I mean, it really is stark when you look at this. Again, prior resistance, you go back to 2010, becomes support. You see it in 2017, 18. And here we are testing it again. You know, 
I would submit, Dan, if we get to that 88 level, things could get real dicey real fast. And listen, people will say that the stock market likes a weaker dollar. I get it. I'm not certain that's the case. You get to these diminishing marginal returns or the points on the graph where things start to change. And it could come in the form of 88 and the DXY. Just something to look at, folks, as we get into the back half of this year. Yeah, and you've often called this combination of lower dollar rising rate. What is, it's a witch's brew, guy. Yes, it is. Me. That's what you call it. And by it. the way, didn't Chris Vecchio <laughs> say this? Didn't he say he was going to steal that term from me last week when we yeah. did the macro setup? Yes, thank you, Dan. Well, anyway. what do they say? What do they say about uh, flattery? Or, or, it's, or they yeah, say yeah, imitation it's, is yeah, the greatest form go. of flattery. There yes, they do. Go. All right. Well, here's another one. I'm just going to let you go because you're on a bit of a roll here. I am. You, you had well, a great, you had a great call last spring, 2020, um, about gold. It literally went had a parabolic move. It went from like 1675 above. Uh, 2000 in what felt like obviously like a straight line. And then there was this really well-defined downtrend. Um, yeah. And it's just kind of had this bounce off those levels from last May, June or so. Um, so a little less than a year. And it's kind of gotten back towards that downtrend line. I think you see something different than I see. I see the potential for a failed breakout. You sure see you something do. Of different. You do. Talk to me about it. Talk because about when it. Because we all have our own dogma, no matter how strong okay. you want to rage against it. We're all somewhat dogmatic. And I see one thing, you know, I see a breakout and you see a fail. But that's what, listen, that's why markets are so fascinating. That's why we do this, because you're looking for different points of view. Yeah. What I'll say is, and one of the things we mentioned, you know, I think the low was back in June of 2020, 16.50 or so in gold. And it traded down there and it held. We said, listen, you have a real chance for a double bottom here. And it's finally starting to play itself out. You look, we're through, in my opinion, we're through this pretty significant downtrend line. From last summer when we topped out, I think we're going right back to it. Obviously, we probably have to take a breather in the form of that, what was it, Dan, December high-ish. Yeah. But I think we're headed, I, I really believe we're headed to that 2100 level-ish that we saw in August of 2020. And, it, and, and again, it's going to, in my opinion, it's going to coincide with the dollar breaking down. And yes, yields going higher. And I know that's somewhat counterintuitive because a lot of people say gold doesn't like higher yields, yeah. higher yields. We'll see. But this, to me, is a breakout. And oh, by the way, Dan, it's also manifesting itself in a single stock. Slide it all once again for you match game fans. Newmont Mining. Look what's going on in this sucker. I mean, you go back to a 12-year high. We're taking out a 12-year high in Newmont Mining. Uh, and I think this is really telling a story. So gold hasn't gotten back to those highs. But guess what? Newmont Mining is doing it for you. I tweeted yesterday that Newmont Mining is telling a story. I'm sure the story that you would read be one story. I'd read the other fable, but again, that's what makes markets stand. Nathan. The other fable, um, yeah. I'll just say this: like I'm that. not. Fable I'm not, is such a great word. By I'm way. not a fan. Of, I'm not a fan of gold here. Um, I feel like you probably do get a failed breakout. I think a big um, reason for that downtrend from August was let's slide it again here, Mike uh, Cavito here uh, to Bitcoin. I mean, uh -huh. look at what's happened at that time last summer. You know, Bitcoin was hovering about ten thousand, and then it just Started. I mean, all the reasons why you wanted to buy gold back then, that's why people are, you know, some of the main reasons why they started buying Bitcoin the way they did. So to me, I'd much rather buy 
digital gold than the old school gold here. Look at this chart, you know, not particularly great. We have that breakout level 42.5 from early February here. We're testing it right now. We're down about 33% from those highs um, in April, which actually coincided with the day of the Coinbase IPO. Um, I, I don't think that's particularly a coincidence. There's obviously uh, a lot of excitement around retail, but the real story over the last year has been about institutional adoption. And I think this whole little meme war between um, you know Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, and the Bitcoin community has definitely taken its toll over the last week. So you know, very important support level. You said Novogratz, who's obviously one of the biggest Bitcoin bulls. He thinks between forty and fifty. You know, I see support down there at thirty thousand. That was kind of the lows um, in January. And I think I just think that Bitcoin has stolen all of the luster from gold. I'd be a seller at that downtrend in the gold so, and i'd be a scaled down buyer of the bitcoin guy donnie okay so first of all i love the meme things those commercials <laughs> there's that what is it one of these insurance commercials where the guy's up there and then some guy asks him i bought new insurance on my hashtagging i, I can't oh, those are the progressive that guy progressive guy oh those guy are amazing slays. Yeah, i mean yeah. slay. and i say that because i don't know the difference between a gif and a me it doesn't to me that doesn't matter but it's interesting because I know what you just did there. What you said, what you're saying is the reason why gold has rallied recently is because Bitcoin has sold off from the yeah. recent high of 65,000 ish, right? That's your premise. And I would say it's interesting you say that, Dan. You know, gold is still basically five times larger than crypto in terms of market cap. Maybe Bitcoin has sold off yeah. because gold has rallied. It's causation, right? What's caused the other? I don't know the answer, but I would submit you're right. I mean, if you think Bitcoin's going to hold here, which I think you do in a lot of ways, you got to sell gold. If you think Bitcoin you know, is going to give up the ghost a bit, maybe you stay with the gold. If you think they're mutually exclusive, which I do, maybe you can buy both. I, we'll I just see. don't, I, again, we don't have to debate it. I don't know how they're mutually exclusive. And I just feel like, listen, if you see, it'll be really interesting to see if if Bitcoin does break that 42.5 level and then it makes its way back somewhere into the 30s, which I think is a distinct possibility, you know, over the course of the Bitcoin's um, existence, it's had like, I think Carter Worth was on Fast Money last night saying there's been 11 peak to trough declines of at least 35% or so. A lot of them have been 56 percent or something like that. So, you know, to me, you know, the Bitcoin hodlers would tell you that's, you know, the opportunity here because they see the ability for closing the gap within gold. And I will tell you, the narrative has changed a lot, Guy, in the last couple of years, in my opinion, is that they literally see this as just the, the major pillar of the bull case is that it is going to replace gold as the major store of value. Mm -hmm. I yeah, we only have a couple minutes here, and I just wanted to rip through some some charts of some stuff that we talked about, guy, in the beginning. And we we're talking about pockets of enthusiasm, meme stocks, IPOs, SPACs. I just want to highlight this Tesla chart here. You know, give me give me something on this chart, guy, because there's a couple things going on right here. This thing is going to break one way or the other in a big, big way. It just either feels like a coiled spring here at that one year uptrend below its 200 day moving average for the first time since March 2020, yeah. or if it breaks, it's going right back to like that um that breakout level this stock guy on november 16th was trading at 400 it was down from its prior high you know at 500 or something like that and then it got announcement that it was being added to the s p 500 and you see what happened it literally went from 400 to 850 in a straight line so here we are is this thing going to break that uptrend and is it going back towards that 400 level 
Well, I mean, I will tell you that this is a textbook trend line to the penny, as yeah. Carter says, right at the 200-day, right at this trend line. You know, yeah. this gives you every opportunity, risk-reward-wise, to be long this stop, and it's a pretty well-defined stop. Now, you asked me a question, I'm going to answer it. Feels to me as if we're going to break through it, because obviously I have the view that the Nasdaq's going to give up the ghost. In order to yeah. have that view, I think you have to believe that Tesla is going to give up the ghost as well. So obviously hasn't traded well. What you're hoping for is a big whoosh, one more final whoosh to the downside, followed by you know big volume day, reversal higher. That's going to be your tell. You have not seen that at all. And the longer it stays here, the more inclined I'm to believe that we're going to break through to the downside. Yeah. So the last two things here, we have an IPO index down 25% from its highs, the Renaissance IPO index. This is kind of widely followed. We know that a lot of these recent IPOs, Coinbase, which was a direct listing in April, is down considerably from its post um, IPO high. But there's been some massive names. Airbnb has gotten destroyed of late, Snowflake. I mean, the list goes on and on. These are not trading particularly well here. Um, so I think it's interesting that the IPO index is down 25% from its recent highs. And then lastly, another pocket of um, irrational exuberance, I would mm -hmm. say, would be this SPAC index, also down 25% from its highs. We haven't even mentioned yet the ARK investment, um, whatever their ETF is. So listen, there's a lot of like air coming out of a lot of speculative sort of investments, despite the fact that the S&P 500 is down only 2% from its all-time highs. I guess that's the theme as it relates to equity land here. And your view, just to kind of wrap up rates in the dollar and gold, um, your view is what does all of that have to do with equities here? Do you think that we're in the, you know, do you think we're in for a more volatile summer um, than what we've seen over the last three to four months with the S&P up 10%? I am. And we didn't even mention the VIX today. We stayed away from it. But yeah. just to sort of put a bow tie on this thing, as they say, you know, we've had some pretty benign market days. You know, I would say the last couple of days in terms of price action has been benign, but you have seen the VIX go from 17-ish north of 21. And again, the VIX shouldn't move that significantly on what I deem to be benign days. So you talk about coiled springs, you talk about all these things you talked about being coiled springs. The biggest coiled spring to me is the VIX. The VIX goes higher. I think you know what that means for the broader market. And you mentioned Renaissance as well. And I will tell you, Dan, that with those glasses you're sporting, you're looking like a real Renaissance guy, Dan. I mean, this has been I got to tell you something. This has been one of my favorite macro setups in a while. We did a lot of stuff here in a short amount of time, Dan, Nathan. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, listen, I think these are important times to kind of think about, you know, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to trigger you again. You know, you, 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 got the you got the sell in May and go away crowd out there. You know, things have been a little rocky for the last couple of weeks here. But I guess the point where we're trying to kind of tie it all together, you know, how like that rug really tied the room together. You know what that's from, guy? I don't know. I'll save that for another show here. A um, lot of things going on here and it has the potential to go one way or another. I just don't see a scenario where we see equity just say, you know, everything in the backdrop here looks rosy. Let's break them all out up 10% of the year from the S&P 500. So I think the most natural thing for a second half recovery or a second half post-pandemic rally would be a pullback at some point this summer, kind of take I some of the fear out of investors because they don't seem I, to have any. I agree with that. And the reason, just so you folks know, the reason why we do the macro setup on Tuesday and not Wednesday is because I said categorically that if we do it on Wednesday, every day, Dan's going to say happy hump day. And I could not Ugh. live with myself because no. he's one of those gobble, gobble, happy turkey day. You know How was it. your weekend? You know, it drives me nuts. But you know what else drives me nuts, Dan? The fact that each Tuesday we can do the macro setup nuts in a good way. And I want to thank, obviously, 
our presenting sponsor, Nadex, the premier U.S. exchange. Get ready, Dan. The premier U.S. exchange for binary options, call spreads, and knockouts. You're damn straight. See you next week. (laughs) See you next week, everyone. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of The Macro Setup. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe in podcast stores so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.